Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi everyone, my name is Dev Raga and this is My Millennium Money Professional. And in this episode, we have a very special guest. We've been chatting online for a number of months He's kindly agreed to come on the uh, podcast, and we have Captain Fi. Fi, welcome. G'day, Dev. How you going? Not bad. Not bad. Um, I think you're fresh off a bit of a tour, uh, which we'll talk about. But in this episode, we'll talk about who Captain is, what does he invest in, some of his life principles and philosophies, and some of his background as well. So, Captain, you're ready to get started? Yeah, let's uh, let's crack on. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's get started. Now, if you wanted to ask me a specific question, the best way to do that would be via Twitter or via Facebook. And remember, the three main aims of this channel, education, empowerment, and entertainment. Now, Captain, I understand, let's start from the beginning about your childhood. And you very openly talk about growing up with not much money around. And I think you were raised by your mother as a single parent. What has some of the lessons of your childhood taught you specifically about money? And, and I think if we cross any lines here, just let me know, but hopefully we'll get some insights into your background and your childhood and the relationship to money. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Um, more and more than happy to speak freely about this. So yeah, unfortunately, my, my parents did um, split when I was quite young. Uh, my dad had, he had a lot of uh, his own issues and it sort of manifested as, uh, I guess, a relationship issues. And ultimately, the relationship did break down because my dad was quite controlling, quite abusive towards my mum. One of the ways that that came out was in financial abuse. So she never got child support. Um, in fact, dad actually yeah, moved overseas so that he didn't, you know, couldn't be chased for for child support by uh, the CSA. So it left mum in a real hard spot. And um, look, she was just a brilliant, hardworking, lovely, compassionate person, my mum. Uh, unfortunately, she passed away last year. Absolutely broke my heart. I don't think I'm ever going to really recover from that. But I have taken some really good lessons from her that's going to stick with me for my whole life. She was she was very... Um, enterprising so she could she could stretch the budget you know she was she's basically wrote the book on on frugality and living within your means you know as a kid growing up when you don't have a lot of money you just got to find ways to entertain yourself right so we did we had a lot of low-cost entertainment um, a lot of reading a lot of creativity you know she's to say only boring people get bored <laughs> so yeah we we lived near a reserve i spent a lot of time just climbing trees building cubby houses that kind of stuff really that was normal to me. So, yes, some kids have all these extracurricular activities. They go to ballet and they go to tennis and they, you know, they can do everything, underwater basket weaving courses. Not saying that I didn't do some of those things. I think mum did enrol me in a karate class. I think I lasted about three three classes before I was kicked out. <laughs> mm. um, but, look, if I was going to really distill um, the lessons down into a couple of, a couple of big points... The first one is definitely living within your means. Second one is frugality. And just want to point out that frugality is not being cheap, okay? I'd like to think frugality is more about intention, uh, intentional spending. Uh, and again, education, reading, and creativity. That, those are probably the biggest takeaways that I got from uh, from mum my childhood. Yeah, I mean, that's it's interesting. I, th- I think you're spot on with frugality versus cheap. I think it's a big, big difference. And I think a lot of people confuse the two words and conflate them, but they're very, very different concepts altogether. I think you did engineering. What what type of engineering did you do? Was it aeronautical engineering or? 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. So always wanted to fly. I uh, was fascinated by planes. Uh, and I thought, you know, that would be the discipline that could give me the biggest leg up for an aviation career. So yeah, I had a, a scholarship. So I did initially did a Bachelor of uh, Aeronautical Engineering. Uh, and I was good, I good, performed well academically. Um, so I was um, offered an honours year uh, for research project. So I did that. That was awesome. Later on down the track, I went and did a master in space engineering, which uh, through coursework, not as exciting as research, but it was still uh, really interesting and, you know, kept, kept the brain ticking over. Uh, and I'm not quite ready yet, but I'm contemplating <laughs> looking at research proposals for, for PhDs over the next few years. <clears throat> See, it's the shortcut to being called doctor there, Dev, just do a PhD, right? <laughs> well, the P- PhD is the proper doctor, uh, whereas, <laughs> whereas people like me, uh, we're sort of just fudging it at the moment. Um, look, look I, was, I was really lucky, though, to, to snag a scholarship, to have tuition covered uh, and books, um, getting paid during the study and getting subsidised accommodation really put me in a very privileged position so, like in general, as we'll probably get to, like aviation training, like pilot training, it's really expensive. So, I was able to kind of use the income that I had from scholarships uh, as well as other little side hustles um, for over a period of about six years to get aviation qualified where I, where I was ready for a job that wasn't just in sort of an entry level uh, flying job. Right. So, can I just ask, do you have to do aeronautical engineering and then go to flight school or can you do flight school straight after high school? Oh, look, no, you, there's no requirement for, for tertiary uh, tertiary education or, or a degree to land a job. It used to be um, that, you know, most airlines or uh, like serious um, operators or like government jobs, they'd want you to have a aviation degree. So a lot of people would have say, a bachelor of aviation or potentially like a bachelor of business or something like that, but not really. So it does set a really good foundation because um, you that foundational knowledge, that background knowledge. Um, also just, you know, that all the benefits you get from further education being your um, maturity, your research skills, um, you know, amongst everything else, like it certainly helps, I think, your well-roundedness as an adult and as a decision maker to have that experience, um, but it is not required. So technically, all you need is a commercial pilot's license to to fly for, quote, hire and reward uh, in Australia, um, which you can, you can get quite quickly. And there's sort of, there is some theory components to that, but it's sort of more at the sort of TAFE level, definitely not really at that university level. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about the cost of your education? Perhaps start with aeronautical engineering, because presumably that's covered by, you know, HEX or help debt. But what about going to flight school? Because presumably there is no HEX or there is no help for that. So therefore you would need to cash flow that. And I think when we got chatted about this um, earlier, it's very expensive. I was actually quite shocked how expensive it is to go to flight school. Can you tell us about that, your journey in terms of the amount of debt or the amount of money that you need in order to cash flow to become a pilot in your case? Yeah. So, look, it can be really expensive. And I I use the word can because there are several factors um, that sort of determine how expensive your flight training is going to be. And you can actually, uh, at accredited training institutions, you can actually like hex debt this up or or help debt this up. Um, I've got a number of uh, good friends that uh, did just that. The issue is, right, and this is probably opening a, a can of worms, and there's been a number of legal battles, uh, including some of my close friends uh, have been involved in where aviation schools, basically, they <laughs> sort of add 50% or maybe even double to the um, the basic cost. So if you were if you were just um, paying pay as you go, we kind of tend to call it, that's the cash flow, pay as you go, you know, you might be looking at around, say, $300 plus an hour uh, for for flight training, whereas that same level of training, that same service and aircraft, uh, you might be paying, you know, 400, 500 an hour if you were to to slap it on the help debt. So that's that's one thing to consider. So just bringing it back to me, so obviously, yep, had my um, undergrad paid for uh, via scholarship, which is awesome. Uh, I don't actually know how much that costs. I think at the the time, I guess I was a bit... um, I didn't care, right? Because it didn't affect me. Because even though I I wanted the qualification, I was sort of, I think I was probably more focused on the qualification than actually the training I was receiving. So probably a little bit spoiled in that regard. 
Um, but my goal had, yes, always been to, to fly. So a number that gets thrown out for a, a bare-bones commercial pilot's license, right? And you say the legal minimum here is two, 200 hours, or I think it's 150 for an integrated course through you know, a specialist aviation college. But you ain't getting the commercial license. You ain't getting a commercial job with 200 hours, yeah? Anyway, right. so that basic bare-bone license, that's about $100,000, yeah? But like I said, you you rack up your 100K in hex, um, you max that out, and you've, you've popped out with basically your minimum minimum time and you're, you're barely employable, right? So, I mean, I don't know a lot about medical stuff, but maybe imagine a, imagine a first-year med student <laughs> coming to the hospital and, and asking, Tiff, oh, what can I do? You know, you're probably going to go, oh, go and get some experience right so look to become employable as a pilot you really need ratings and endorsements for what you're actually going to be flying and the type of flying you're going to be doing and a lot of people will also pay for what's called ICAS time that's in command under supervision and in adjunct to that they will build hours on multi-engine aircraft and the reason they do that is because they want you to have experience and have experienced difficulties and made decisions. So if you're, you know, brand new, nothing's ever gone wrong, they don't know how you're going to really react under in an emergency or even when things become slightly difficult. So what um, most employers want to see is you've actually got some experience, you've got some time, you have a solid and robust uh, decision-making process uh, and that, yeah, you're going to be able to do the job safely. So back when I was building up my multi-engine time, I would rent multi-engine aircraft, so like Partnavia, Seneca, Barons, and the, the Barons, which are awesome plane, you know, they, they cost me like, it was just like 770 bucks an hour, you know? It's a lot of time and money invested. And, you know, that was five, 10 years ago, so I'm sure the price of Barons has increased. So, so yeah, most pilots... Um, that do go down the hex road, they would max out the hex um, and then they'd also be working second jobs. So right. um, so, some of my most successful aviation colleagues, you know, they were like brickies labourers. One of them was a diesel mechanic, you know. They're doing hard jobs, earning a lot of money and trying to save it to then, to then chuck that into their flight training. I was thinking about this just before we came on and, you know, there's, there's probably no way you're going to get a decent job unless you've, really gone around that $200,000 worth of training. I've obviously spent a bit more than that because I didn't really do it the most efficient route. I did a lot of pleasure flying. I also hesitated quite a bit, working up the confidence to leave an engineering role into a flying role. And I probably did a lot of endorsements that I didn't need to per se. But yeah, you're spending less than 200K, you're coming out with a bare bones commercial license, probably won't even have an instrument rating. You're going to be flying scenic flights once a week. The rest of the time, you're probably going to be doing unpaid work as a cleaner or a, or a sales assistant. Or if you're on a, um, you, you know, if you're out uh, in a rural area, you're probably digging uh, trenches for pipes and doing fencing, which is what a couple of my friends uh, ended up doing in Central Australia, which is quite frustrating. So, yeah, you can probably understand my, my lack of enthusiasm for the entry-level pilot jobs, but ultimately people do have to start somewhere and, um, yeah, you pretty much won't get paid <laughs> for your first couple of years. Right. So I, I guess just to, like, do you have to do those entry-level jobs, like, you know, in medicine, you've got to be an intern, you've got to do that for 12 months, and then you've got to become a resident, then you've got to become a registrar. It's a very hierarchical step-by-step ladder before you achieve what we call consultancy or fully-fledged doctor or fellowship. Often takes anywhere between sort of, you know, 11 to 20 years since the start of medical school to achieve that. Is it very similar in terms of the hierarchical nature? So, for example, if you finish your 200 or 300 hours of commercial pilots training and you've spent all that money, I assume you're not going to go and just apply for a job at Qantas or Virgin or Jetstar or Singapore Airlines. I assume you'll have to do those scenic flights first and then work your way up the ladder and then eventually, you know, hopefully one day, uh, become a uh, commercial pilot flying locally or internationally. Is that the system? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's. I'd say it's probably a lot le- um, less structured than the medical profession. So there are tiers of license. So 
when people say a commercial pilot, there's a big difference between a CPL, commercial pilot's license, and an ATPL or an airline transport pilot's license. So, so CASA, yeah, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority is the regulator, and they have these tiers of license and tiers of operation. So there are regs and you can dive into them, but for simplicity's sake, if you want to uh, fly from A to B on a smaller aircraft with a small amount of passengers, I think it's uh, 5,700 kilos or less. So imagine a King Air, which is a, a twin turboprop. I forget, probably seats about 10 or 15 people. Anything less than that, you can usually get a commercial pilot to fly that. Um, anything larger than that, uh, or if you're going to do regular um, passenger transfer or scheduled services like essentially the airlines, um, the pilot in command, being the captain, will need an ATPL. And so that's 1,500 hours. Um, you also do have to hold a multi-engine command instrument rating. Uh, that basically allows you to fly the aircraft in poor weather conditions for, for one of you know, simplicity's sake. So your commercial license, you know, you're flying a basically a Cessna, a four-engine, a, a four-seater, one-engine plane in good weather. And then you progress through complexity until you're flying a multi-engine aircraft in essentially cloud, flying instrument approaches uh, to, a, to a poor weather in, uh, environment. When I had my bare bones commercial license, hell yeah, I applied for Qantas. And did they fly? Did they um, hire me? Hell no. <laughs> um, and that's just how it goes. I think you do need to chuck your hat in the ring, so to speak. And you just got to, you know, aspiring young pilots to apply for everything. But yeah, you a lot of the positions do have um, minimum experience requirements. There is uh, a really good, for any aspiring pilots, if they go to the AFAP, they just type, type into Google AFAP jobs, Australian Federation of Air Pilots, there'll be job listings on there and you'll see, you know, it'll be a, a 737 captain or a 737 co-pilot or, you know, ATR co-pilot. Um, and it'll usually list the minimum hour requirements. And a lot of the more reputable airlines that, you know, command the higher salaries, their minimums will be in the thousands of hours, which, you know, when your maximum flying hours in a year is around um, a thousand hours, but, you know, most people won't fly that, you can probably safely say that you know 500 hours or more is about a, a year's worth of experience um, and so some of these positions might even be 5,000 so that may be a 10 10 year position um, of experience but mm. really it does comes down to the company that's uh, hiring uh, and it's really more industry regulated rather than you know having a, a sort of regulatory body like the medical association I see a lot of parallels between pilot training and medical training because what society sees is, you know, particularly in the medical world, you know, doctor, you know, devs a doctor, you know, life's cruisy, makes a lot of money, uh, has never had to worry about life. Well, you know, it does take a number of years to be able to get to that position if that, at least a sort of 11 to 20 years uh, of training, including medical school. Whereas, you know, me as a doctor, you know, you're sort of sitting around waiting to board an aircraft and you see pilots walk by, they're all sort of wearing their suits and their hat and you've got to go, wow, you know, these guys or girls, you know, have done all these years of training. From what I'm trying to understand here is it's very similar. It's not as if that that person who works through that gate and, you know, starts preparing for the international long-haul flight, they've done thousands and thousands and hours of training and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in training fees to get to that stage. And society sees that. That's what I see as a doctor. I'm sitting in the lounge, I'm waiting for my flight and I see pilots walking around the airport and that's what I see. But what you've highlighted is that, well, to get to that level is a few hundred thousand dollars if that plus a second job. So how did you cash flow the cost? I mean, did you just end up graduating with significant amounts of debt? Or, I mean, if you're paying 400 to $500 an hour in training fees, working as a diesel mechanic or fencer or labourer or landscaper, that's not going to pay that. So how did you do it? Yeah, so I guess I was, again, really fortunate in that I pretty much had subsidised accommodation, subsidised food, a regular paycheck, even though it wasn't huge, uh, and I had time. So I was able to, you know, get all my academic work done pretty quickly and to, a, you know, an acceptable standard. I used to be, you know, super 
pedantic about getting you know perfect scores and everything when I was younger. And as I got older, I realized that peas get degrees. <laughs> I can use this time to go flying. Um, so, yep, whilst it was expensive, it was over a period of about six years until I had an ATPL uh, or a frozen ATPL an instructor rating, um, you know, multi-engine command instrument rating, multi-engine training approval. Uh, I, so by the end of the journey, I was making money from flying. So basically, uh, I had a whole bunch of shitty jobs mm. <laughs> that I would do. Um, I tutored people uh, in like STEM. So I did like, you know, um, maths and physics, chemistry. Uh, when I was in, you know, university, I would either tutor um, the first years or people in high school or uh, particularly I found there was a lot of people that worked in embassies or for other companies that um, had their, had children that maybe weren't um, used, they were just slotting into that secondary schooling system uh, and so they needed a bit of uh, tuition to help them sort of get across the line. So yeah, I was able to go in there and, you know, started out only earning you know, 20, 30 bucks an hour. Um, but by the end of it, uh, I was able to, you know, get up to about $100 an hour um, just tutoring. Uh, this is like high school, so year 11 and 12 uh, maths and physics uh, and first and second year university. You know, I probably shouldn't say this, but yes, I probably did do some assignments for people. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's just you did what you sort of had to do. Look, I've done a whole bunch of crap jobs. Like I've cleaned graffiti, I've washed cars, yeah, I've flipped cars, so like motorcycles, you know, basically buy it, ride it, enjoy it, fix it up and sell it. Uh, and, yeah, basically just putting my savings into the next rating or, you know, the next uh, endorsement. And, yeah, um, I mean, I was, I guess I was also fortunate in that, you know, I did look after some aircraft for a few aircraft owners. So in doing so, I would uh, clean the aircraft, uh, take the aircraft, organize the aircraft's maintenance. So when it needed to have a hundred hourly, you know, take it to the maintenance organization, which it would often entail actually flying to a different aerodrome. And yeah, basically just keeping it cleaned and fueled ready for whenever the owner wanted to go flying. So in that respect, I was able to get some some free flying or some very subsidized flying out of that. But otherwise, it was basically just money that I got from my scholarship plus money that I got from working my ground job and any side hustles that I could have. And, um, yeah, I'm really proud to say that I actually didn't have any debt uh, when I got my ATPL. Right. Well, that's, that's fantastic. We'll just take a quick break. And when we come back, I've got a few more questions about Captain Phi about himself. Then we'll move on to some money topics. Some of the topics we'll talk about is discounts for business and first class, given that Captain is a pilot and a commercial pilot, I think I think he was, and airline mileage points, all these frequent flyer programs. Is it worth it? Then we'll talk about income streams and investing. So we'll be right back. We're interviewing Captain Five. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, welcome back. We have Captain Five with us 
today. And interesting so far that I've learnt about how to become a pilot, which is not cheap. And there's a fair bit of hustle that Captain did during his training years. Now, this is a, a, a fan question, two questions, two topics. The first one is because you're a commercial pilot, and my understanding is you fly locally and internationally or used to anyway before you are semi-retired or retired. Uh, do you get special rates on business class or first class? Uh, because, you know, every time I've researched about the fares, they're about four to 10 times as expensive as economy class. What's the deal behind that? Because I've been fortunate enough to travel in business class and and hopefully in the future this year, first class. And it is it, I mean, 10 times as much expensive as an economy class seat. I don't think I'm getting 10 times the level of luxury or service. So question one is, do you get a discount and can you help someone out? <laughs> well, look, um, unfortunately, no. I, I flew um, cargo, so freight. Um, so no options for business or first class. I guess my options were to sit on the back of a pallet. <laughs> and uh, now that I'm sort of out of the fold, I'm retired. In fact, my ASIC. Um, so pilots have to have like a security clearance uh, card to get airside. I, I don't even have a current ASIC at the moment, right. so okay. I can't. I couldn't even. I couldn't even get airside if I wanted to, Dev. Look for long sort of deadheads, as the sort of joked, jokingly called, or positioning flights. Um, sometimes we would get business class if it was if there was a regular passenger service to that destination. But honestly, most of the times um, it was just economy. I think I got business class once for a flight. To Dubai, but yeah, most of it, most of it's just crammed, crammed into economy. Uh, other times, you know, we'd be on a jump seat, so most aircraft will have a jump seat, so a third or fourth and fifth seats in the cockpit, um, which should just be like either a fold down seat or a you know just a standard seat. I mean, for uh, my friends and family in like main main lines, um, there are company loyalty programs. So my cousin's a air hostess, uh, and she, you know loves loves the um the program uh she can essentially have like her her family uh there's a number of people like four or maybe six you're allowed to have um and it does let you get cheaper flights so it works it kind of works on a bidding system i haven't actually used it myself so take what i say with a grain of salt but you essentially bid for empty seats and you kind of get them at cost so maybe like sydney to japan for like 150 bucks or something like that but if the seats sell out, then you're sort of stuck at the airport waiting for the next flight and mm. potentially more senior airline employees uh, that have like a higher ranking in you, they can sort of trump you and take your seat. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how it works, but I guess if you do have time, mm. um, like if you're an airline employee or a family or friend of an airline employee and you're on this program and you are flexible with being late or whatever, then it's a great way to, to save save money. So is it practically people that like your your cousin, for example, can they just get anyone as part of that scheme or is that only immediate family members? Um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's just supposed to be family members and maybe like close friends. I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll send her a message and I'll, and I'll ask her. Like I said, I, I never got to use those programs myself. So I've always just I've always just paid uh, <laughs> paid for economy flights myself if I'm ever going on holiday. And and of course, I mean, arguably, I, I am part of a frequent flyer a Facebook group, and I think a lot of them listen to this uh, channel and especially this episode. And they would argue that you've got the platinum class, that is the very first seat uh, of a plane actually flying it. So I would trade my business or first class seats with your seat. I mean, I've never actually been inside. I mean, I've seen the cockpit from sort of a distance, you know, uh, back in the day in the 90s, we were allowed to sort of go up before the airplane took off and ask the flight attendant uh, or the pilot, can we actually have a look? But we weren't actually allowed to go inside the cockpit. This is before 9-11 days when the cockpit door was actually locked. Uh, it'd be just an amazing experience uh, for someone like myself to actually sit in the cockpit, whether it be, you know, even in the back on the corner and just watching the whole time, it'll just be uh, a dream come true. So I, I think I, I will trade my uh, my business or first class uh, flight um, tickets uh, with the front, the very front, which is what you've had the privilege of. 
What about... You've got to be careful though, Dev. You go up there, they, they might make you start working for that seat. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what, what about um, frequent flyer programs? I'm just curious your opinion about it because I'm part of a couple and and again, when you, you know, when you fly sort of, uh, you know, three or four times a year, which, which, which I do, I sort of fly potentially sort of four to six times a year, a lot of the time uh, international as well. You get put on this program, you get sort of status credits or whatever they call it, and and you get upgrades based on that. I mean, we all know that credit card mileage points or points that you earn from credit card is, is not really worth it because, I mean, the banks and the credit card companies, I mean, they've figured it out, right? What about the airline mileage programs? In your opinion, are they worth it? Yeah, so sorry, and I've just realised I forgot to um, finish off your previous question. About whether business class and first class is is worth it? In my opinion, no. It, I don't think it's worth it um, for people that might have like health conditions or if they're you know older or they um, you know traveling um, on a tighter timeline. It might be worth it to them. And the reason they cost more is just because they take up more room. It's like a marketing thing as well. So airlines, you know, they know they can sell a particular number of seats in economy, a particular number of seats in business, and a particular number of seats in first class. It's definitely a perceived status thing. I would never fly first class unless someone else was paying. Like I said, I've flown business a couple of times, but usually if I'm paying, I just suck it up and take economy. Uh, but I know a lot of people who refuse to travel in economy. My, my partner, for example, she 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 only fly business class. Mm. So she'll fly business class and I'll sit in the back. It's just, I think it's just like a personal thing. But definitely if you can get it, someone else is paying or the company's paying, go for it. Mm. So airline mileage points. People love talking about this stuff online. Like just jump on Instagram. You'll see a million accounts of people that built their whole brand around points hacking. Um, I think talking about like mileage points and credit card points online, you know, and then selling advertising space and working with travel and bank affiliates, it's probably a lot more profitable than actually the point hacking if you kind of catch my drift. Right. I think, look, there's definitely some value to be had, but my understanding is it's below about 1% of the purchase price. So you're spending 100 bucks, you're getting a dollar back in value. So in that respect, it's kind of similar to credit card point hacking. But you do really have to do a lot of travel or spending to make it worth your while. I, I personally don't even bother because I think it's probably better to spend your, you know, training your frugality muscles rather than having a million credit credit cards and a million um, loyalty programs with various airlines. But, you know, it's something I'm still looking into and learning. I would not call myself an expert. So, again, take everything I say with a grain of salt. I think the real value is really in upgrades and perks. So going from economy to premium economy, premium economy to business, upgrading hotel rooms, that, that kind of thing. So yeah, you, you probably could make it work if you're a big spender and you frequently travel or holiday. But for your average person who's not traveling, it's, um, it's probably just a waste of time. <laughs> I think people are going to get a bit sad that I've said that. Um, I'm sure there'll be many experts that can chime in and, and correct me, but that's just uh, that's just my, my take on it. Mm, I agree. I don't travel to earn frequent flyer miles or status credits. It just so happens that I travel, which I have to, and as a result of that, I get it. I'm not going to say no to it. And it does provide some sort of, you know, perks like, you know, early check-in or the lounge access and all that sort of stuff. But certainly I I wouldn't be traveling just to uh, accumulate those points, just like I wouldn't be spending money on my credit card just to accumulate points. I think that's madness. And that's a nice little segue into the captain as an income generator from a money perspective. I mean, I think you famously openly say that you've had a massive savings rate uh, of up to 80%, which is impressive. And, you know, to put that into context, uh, during my junior sort of medical years, I had sort of 50 to 70% savings rate, which I thought was pretty good. I mean, 80% is phenomenal. What do you say to people that say, well, that's that's pretty hardcore. And did you sort of end up having, you know, certain privileges where you were able to keep your expenses as low as possible. Like, for example, 80% savings rate, perhaps for a family with children, is a bit impractical. But someone like yourself who, you know, my understanding is you don't have children yet, uh, it is practical. How did you achieve that? And what do you say to those people that say, well, that's pretty hardcore? Yeah, absolutely, man. And look, looking back, um, everyone's got 2020 hindsight, right? May- maybe it wasn't the healthiest 
behavior. And I can say that from, I guess, a, p- a position of privilege now where I have built a large investment portfolio. I do have passive income stream um, and I am semi-retired and can work on my on my terms, on my passion projects, uh, doing things like this, ch- chatting to you today. I would say that, yeah, look, it's not going to be achievable for everyone. I definitely came from a huge position of privilege. Like I said, um, you know, growing up um, the way I did, all of the the shit that my mum had to put up with, you know, she protected and shielded us from that. And she gave us all the opportunities to excel, and which we did academically, and that landed me a sweet job. Uh, didn't have any hex debt that I needed to, to pay off. Um, so my expenses have been really low. Like I said, I don't have kids. Me and my partner are planning to hopefully start a family in the next couple of years. When I look back, um, saving money um, became a bit of a coping mechanism for me, sort of dealing with my money trauma of sort of growing up poor, not having money. It's sort of not, you know, it was my way of regaining control and my, re- my way of regaining power was to have that money working for me and that gave me choices and options and it made me feel safe. But again, it did become a bit of an unhealthy obsession and, and a way to cope with a pretty high workload and at times a very toxic and results-driven workplace. Aiming for a, a super high savings rate will definitely get you to fire quicker, but you know, you've got to balance that with the, your own mental health and the risk of like burnout and fatigue because uh, a lot of people just can't sustain it and give up. And it's not that I... Um, always maintain this huge savings rate. Like, of course, there were times when I lapsed. There were times when I did spend more. But, yeah, on average, it was pretty high. Was, um, I think it was, yeah, around around that 80% on average. Obviously, some some months much higher, a couple of months lower, down around the 70. Again, not only am I saying I'm coming from a position of privilege regarding you know, having a, a really high-paying job, but also some of the perks that I had from that really did enable me to keep my costs low. So having things like meal allowance, travel allowance, subsidized housing, and even the fact that I could take home uh, flight rations, you know, the uh, the in-flight meals, if they were going to get turfed out, you know, I'd just I'd grab them, save them getting thrown away. Right, okay. Um, which, you know, some, some, some of my colleagues just thought was ridiculous, you know, but I, I thought it was ridiculous that they were going into landfill. Mm. Look, these days I've relaxed my spending a bit um, and I certainly allow for a lot more conveniences. Certainly the last six months we were chatting before we went on air, you know, have been pretty difficult, you know, the loss of my mum moving, yeah, uh, again, um, almost 12 months now, semi-retired, quote-unquote semi-retired. There'd been a lot of changes in my life. And so going through those changes, you know, I spent a lot more on, on conveniences. Um, and I think that was because, you know, at that time, I really didn't care about, you know, saving an extra 1% or 2% by meal prepping. I really just wanted the convenience of, say, like a meal delivery or a takeaway or somebody to service the car so that I didn't have to get dirty. You know, so people's savings rates are all going to be dependent on their particular living situation. Most Australian professionals, you know, it's going to be effortlessly easy to save a bit of money especially when you know you're considering those major areas like accommodation, housing, food and travel. Your average Australian, we are actually, you know, people don't want to hear this, but we're actually pretty bloody wasteful and we're super lucky in this country. So it's, you know, I don't think it's really a big ask for most people to be able to save some money, but certainly getting up to that 80% rate, you know, you do need to have, um, you know, certain privileges and not the least of which is to have an above average income, which most doctors and pilots will have. Yeah. And and look, I, I think I, I sort of say minimum sort of 20% of after-tax income is that sort of sweet spot for most people. I think anything more than that, you're doing pretty well. Anything more than 50%, you're doing extremely well. Yeah. Just to put things into context, if you're a, you know, pilot, uh, you know, uh, I think you were flying uh, international cargo, do cargo pilots make more money than, you know, commercial pilots, let's say, you know, Emirates or Qantas or, or Singapore Airlines. How does the pay scale work? And, you know, when you say 80% of annual income, what is the annual income? I mean, if you don't mind me asking, what was your annual income and 80% of that? Because that makes a difference because, you know, 80% of 100,000 as opposed to 80% of 
500,000. So, yeah, absolutely, man. So, um, so first of all, no. So, cargo pilots don't get paid as much as, um, as passenger transport pilots. Often, like, cargo, uh, flying cargo can be seen as, um, <laughs> building, a, building hours, <laughs> um, to get to the airlines. Most operators, particularly those in Australia, will be offering award or above average award. So award is um, basically an enterprise agreement that the union has lobbied for. So in Australia, that's the Australian Federation of Air Pilots. And again, if you just Google AFAP, pilot award or AFAP enterprise agreements, you can jump on and you can see it. They actually list all of the award rates for um, particular types of aircraft, whether that's like passenger, cargo, wide body, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you, you can really see it, you know, the pay is linked to the complexity of operations that you're doing and the complexity of the aircraft. So to put in perspective, I guess my tax return that I did uh, for my last year of work um, where I combined like my money that I was earning plus money that I got from my investments, um, it was just over 200,000. So I think 202,000 um, was the, the taxable taxable salary. And from that, I invested just under 100,000. So uh, that is a savings rate of around, I'm trying to do the maths here in my head. It was around 70 something percent um, that was just for the last year. So I, excluding investment income, was around about 160 for my final year of flying, which which is pretty good. I thought that's a pretty pretty solid uh, pretty solid salary. Um, having said that, you know I was working a lot, um, I was away a lot, and yeah, I, I like to think I was pretty good at what I did, um, but. Typically, like the employers like Qantas or Emirates are, you know, they're considered the holy grail. So if you were to get a, if you were to get a job flying RPT, international RPT with, with Qantas or Emirates on, on, a, on a heavy wide body, even something like the, um, the Super Jumbo, the A380, you know, that's like a half a million a year salary um, for a captain. Obviously, your, your first, first officer and your second officer is, is going to be less. I obviously commensurate with your experience. Like we, we talked about the hierarchy. You know, probably a couple hundred thousand dollars difference at least. So, so certainly I wasn't on any anything crazy, crazy like that. You know, there's stories in the past that like Cathay Pacific used to pay seven four seven captains. Like when I was a kid, um, I used to volunteer at the um, firefighting cadets, and one of the instructor's brothers was a was a Cathay Pacific seven four seven captain, and, and he was making like half a million. And that was US um, tax free. Um, and I've got a lot of friends who contract for overseas militaries, um, for example, in like uh, Riyadh or like in Saudi Arabia, uh, Dubai, you know, and that's, they're like tax-free jobs, you know, 550K Australian plus, you know, benefits, accommodation, healthcare, travel, insurance, you know, they put up their family. So having said that, you know, it's probably a pretty risky type of flying you're doing. Not sure if I'd want to be <laughs> doing that kind of flying. Um, there's, you know, there is some pretty serious conflicts going on in that part of the world. Probably a lot of stuff that doesn't make it to the news. So that's probably why they're getting paid so much. Um, but yeah, there certainly are huge, huge salaries if you're willing to sacrifice your lifestyle. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, again, I'm looking at it from a public perception point of view. I mean, the average person, including me, who has very limited knowledge about the um, airline industry, often assume that most pilots would earn in excess of three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, it no. sounds like most pilots come out with a debt in excess of three hundred thousand um, dollars, and sounds like the earnings are nowhere near as lucrative as what the average person would think, just kind of like the average person would think the average doctor would earn in excess of half a million dollars, which is not really true. Now, just before we finish up part one of uh, an interview with the captain, what are some of the bad things about being a pilot? I mean, because for most people, being a pilot is awesome. I mean, you travel the world, you get, you know, pole position at the front of the aircraft. If you're lucky enough to be part of a flagship airline, you might even get discount business and first-class flights. You get kind of priority treatment and it's a pretty cool job. Now, that's the public perception. What's your perception? Yeah, look, one of the things that I loved about flying is that 
even though it can get a bit Groundhog Day-ish in that, you know, you're doing similar stuff, no two flights are really ever the same, right? Because the clouds always move. There's different temperatures, you know, different weather, different, you know, the type of flying that I did was, you know, I'd fly into multiple different types of aerodrome. So I wasn't really just doing the same, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, Melbourne, Sydney, Melbourne, Sydney. To me, probably, mm-hmm. probably one of the reasons why I'm not interested in um, RPT or flagship travel is because of the repetition. I don't really just want to fly Melbourne, Sydney legs. So I, I enjoyed sort of the using of my brain, but it can be hard work. You know, whilst it does sound really cool, um, the reality is after you're in the role for a couple of years, it can start to become a bit of a grind. So shift work is the obvious killer, which it sounds like, you know, you would be no stranger mm. to shift work in the medical industry. So so shift work can be a killer, right? And that's, and that's really bad for your health. I read somewhere that like if you're, shift workers like lose seven years of their life or something compared to, to standard workers. So so put, put the shift work into one, one area. And now imagine you're a shift worker, but instead of, say, you know, uh, monitoring a, uh, a radio station or, a, you know, uh, you're on a mining camp and, I mean, I don't know what the FIFO people do, but say they're, they're monitoring a mine site at night in like an operations room. Like, yeah, it's boring. They're trying to drink coffee to stay awake. But imagine doing that, but instead you, you fly a $200 million plane. You might have passengers down the back and <laughs> you have to actually land this thing mm. in challenging weather conditions. So stress is the other one. It can be a lot of stresses, especially it's an industry that I wouldn't say has the best reputation for, you know, how people are treated. It tends to be quite outcome motivated. So it's very results driven. Mm. Um, so if you can't, if you can't make the grade, if you can't meet the standard, you're out of here, son. Mm. Um, Interesting. So she, yeah, you know, you, you spend a lot of time away from your family. You, you'd be going to remote locations, which, you know, um, some of the places I went to barely, like, you know, like a, a barely three-star three hotel, you know, they're not places you really want to go to, right? You know, in terms of, like, how the health risks, like, you do have a, lot, a higher exposure to, you know, things like viruses, bacteria, radiation exposure, you know, given that, you know, when you're cruising, you know, 30,000 feet or above, you are above, you know, a lot of the atmosphere. You're above the majority of the atmosphere. So even, like, the sunburn that you get, it's a lot worse than if you're on the ground. You know, it sounds a bit silly, but you actually get cosmic radiation, mm. so galactic radiation so um most pilots <laughs> get cancer uh, you know if you just google like cancer astronaut you'll see at the extreme level but certainly uh airline pilots they're they're no uh they're no, they're no different they they certainly are at risk of getting uh cancer um you, we saw like um during uh covid obviously you can imagine trying to be a pilot during during the pandemic a lot of flights were grounded in fact i remember having to move covid related equipments vaccines uh supplies that kind of stuff we couldn't just stop and that was that was pretty stressful right mm. Um, ex- extreme environmental conditions, you know, both hot and cold. You know, I've gone into pre-flooded jet and it's been, you know, 45, 50 degrees on the tarmac and it's been 75, 80 degrees Celsius in the cockpit. Like you got to think you're basically in a greenhouse on a black tarmac and you've got your avionics on and screens on in the aircraft and they're just, you know, mm. <laughs> pumping out heat. Um, so, you know, at some point you need gloves to touch buttons and switches in the aircraft. Um, you know, snowstorms, dust storms. You know, you're in a snowstorm and you've got uh, you got ice and snow all over your aircraft. So how are you going to get out? How are you going to fly? Well, you got to get that snow off, you know. We used to have a tennis ball and a string and a rope and we'd throw that over the wing and move that back and forth to try and get clods of <laughs> clods of snow off the wing, you know. Right. Obviously, you've got de-icing and uh, services, but, you know, they're not going to come out and de-ice an aircraft that's covered in snow. So, you know, you're going to have to brush it off, right? Mm. You know, what else? Working in dangerous areas, I've done a lot of work in remote areas in Southeast Asia and Papua New Guinea, the Middle East, one of the downsides, high training costs, treat, getting treated poorly by your employers or poorly by some more senior captains, job insecurity. Um, it's a very sedentary job, so you're sort of sitting down. You're not really doing a lot of work. 
Yeah, what else? I guess like that can kind of lead to like kind of back and neck issues. I've actually had some back and neck issues issues myself, more mostly relating to like actually a, a whiplash incident when I banged my head in the aircraft. And then, yeah, just your, your typical workplace stress, you know. Mm. No. Um, and it, yeah, I'd say probably another, another thing to consider is um, when you have accidents in the aircraft, not only can that create, you know, some, some trauma regarding like a, a, having a, an accident. I've had a couple of accidents in the aircraft. But you can kind of develop a bit of anxiety towards always doing the right thing and making sure that you've got your initial actions down pat. And it can it can it can be really overwhelming. It can really take over your life, you know, making sure that you've got your actions on done correctly. And again, you know, it, it can bring up like me personally, like I'm I'm sort of sweating thinking of like, oh shit, I can't even remember my engine engine failure drills. Uh, and that was like a big part of being a pilot is knowing your emergency actions. And yeah, it's sort of even just thinking about that, it's starting to whew, whip up a bit of bit of a sweat. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's always positives and negatives. And I think as public perception, we, we see a lot of flamboyance when it comes to the airline industry, but there's um, certainly a lot of negative aspects of it. I mean, the time zone challenges, the poor food that you get exposed to, the lack of exercise, it's a very sedentary job and very protocol driven culture could really get to people if they don't have sort of ways to handle it. Now, we've come to the money part of it, so this will be the end of part one. So thank you very much, Captain, for joining for part one of the interview. In the next episode, in part two, we're going to be talking about the money aspect of what Captain does and how he's achieved financial independence at such a young age. So thank you very much for listening. We'll come back in part two. Now, if you want to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you want to use, uh, maybe use it in all of the platforms, just leave a five-star review. Uh, don't hesitate to do that. Please do that because there's a lot of effort and thought processes going into these episodes. So really appreciate that uh, review. My name's Dev Raga. We've got Captain Five. We'll be back in part two. We're going to be talking about financial independence and what Captain invests in. Until next time, Please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 